You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Hello, I'm Paul Fain, the host of this podcast. All the episodes in this series I'm doing with JFF are about timely, important policy questions. But this one, on short-term credentials, is the most newsy topic I cover in my reporting. The episode's title is Ladder Economics, the short and long game of short-term training policy. It comes as a growing number of states are considering subsidies for sub-degree education and training programs, and the U.S. Congress also is debating whether to open up federal Pell Grants to programs that are less than 18 weeks in length. For the episode, I spoke with two community college leaders in states that have had success with short-term training. Monty Sullivan is president of the Louisiana Community and Technical College System. He talked about how Louisiana used federal CARES Act funding to ramp up its short-term credential offerings, as well as how the two-year system worked with employers to tie those credentials to high-demand jobs. Sullivan also talked about how to measure and ensure quality in short-term programs. When we, six years ago, asked employers, how do you determine quality in our graduates? They, they said very simply, if we pay them, then they are quality. So the earnings metric is one that many in higher education are a bit concerned about. Frankly, I think it is a, a strong indicator of quality. Uh, and if these programs are not advancing people at a clip that is worth their time, energy, and the federal resource, then we shouldn't be offering those programs. I also spoke with Ann Kress, president of Northern Virginia Community College. Kress described the approach of the state's fast-forward program, which offers students and colleges incentives for the completion of short-term credentials. And she talked about the crucial role data systems can play in the creation of quality offerings. An institution, NOVA, for example, cannot begin a fast-forward program if there isn't regional demand for this credential. And I really want to underscore that because that relies on the data. The reason we're able to track those wage gains is because we can see it in the data. So that quality control measure, I think, is incredibly important. You're often dealing with very vulnerable populations, right? Someone who's looking for that six to 12 weeks to change their life. And you want to put them in a program where that is actually possible, where they can move from one wage bracket to another. So having that data is essential. At the end of each episode, I touch base with two experts from JFF to help make sense of what we heard. This week, I spoke with Lexi Barrett, who leads JFF's state and federal policy work, and Taylor Mag, who works on the group's federal workforce policy agenda. So make sure you stay tuned to hear what they had to say. Let's get to the conversation. All right, we're talking short-term training policy. I'm joined by Monty Sullivan, president of the Louisiana Community and Technical College System. Hello, Monty. Hey, Paul. How are you? Uh, thank you for the work you're doing here. Very much appreciate how you've elevated so many really important policy issues across the country. Appreciate that. There's a lot going on. And when it comes to short-term training, I know there's a lot going on in Louisiana. So I thought maybe we could start with what's working in the state when it comes to short-term training and what problems are you trying to solve? Absolutely. Louisiana's economy has historically been much about the oil and gas industry. What has happened over the last decade plus has been a diversification of that economy. And as the economy diversifies, so too is the training here. It really begins with why in the world would you move in the direction of short-term training? 
the response there is twofold. Number one, because employers are asking for individuals with skills. Yes, there are positions that require degrees, but so much of the work that is being done within our state and within many other states requires that short-term training and a certification of skills. The second part of that is the adults that we work with are moving in a direction. They simply don't have two years or three years to pursue a degree. They need to get that first job, to go to work, to earn that paycheck, and to continue their education. So those are two trends that are really driving us in that direction here in Louisiana. We have 1.1 million working age adults with a high school diploma or less. That is the target population. To give an example, a year ago, our governor dedicated about $10 million of GEARS funding from the CARES Act. That $10 million, we have been able to, in less than one year, turn into 5,000 completers of high-demand, high-quality, short-term training that allows people to go to work, to be productive citizens, and to engage in this economy. That is the work that is going on here in Louisiana. And given that success story, if you had more support from the state or the feds, do you think the student demand would be there? Uh, No question. The demand is there. The question is much more about how we fund it. And obviously, that is why so much effort has been put behind the workforce Pell notion. These adult students are typically students who are populations who have not traditionally engaged in post-secondary education. I think one of the things for all of us to be mindful of is this is yet another chapter in the history of the evolution of post-secondary education in this country. As adults begin to engage at broader levels, think of that responsibility as community colleges to educate the masses of people across this country. The people that we are engaging with are typically first time in college. They are typically individuals that maybe have not been able to find jobs above minimum wage or or much above minimum wage. And so our responsibility is to make sure we're providing them with that training that gives them the chance to take that next step in life to get to 15 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, et cetera, so that they can take care of their families and then continue their education so that they have opportunities for advancement, a career, not just simply a job. Well, let's talk about that piece a bit. I mean, I I get the fact that with these successful problems, you you could re-engage a potential student audience or students that have really been lost in the system right now, nationally, Louisiana, everywhere. How do you best ensure that those short-term credentials do lead to real career, not just an entry-level job that doesn't lead anywhere? You know, I think that is the key point that has gained a great deal of attention, particularly over the last month or so. Here in Louisiana, we have identified five specific career pathways that are aligned with the economy. Those pathways were not determined solely by the college. They were determined by a combination of our economic development partners, our workforce Department of Labor partners, our business partners, so that those five career pathways are opportunities for people to get engaged in the economy and then be able to progress along that career pathway. So I do think that you have to have really strong guardrails there. I think the quality component really comes back to employment, earnings, longevity of employment, consistency of employment. There are a whole range of potential elements to be included there. And for those who question whether uh, we have the ability to do that, there's no question in my mind. In fact, if you look at a study done in 2019 by uh, Dr. Chris Glass, I believe from Old Dominion University, he studied the the lift that occurs as a result of the short-term training credentials in states like Louisiana, Virginia, and Colorado. What he found right here in Louisiana was people that complete those short-term certifications, they had on average a 19% wage lift. Their consistency and employment improved. These are individuals who are going to work in positions that are not just 
increase their earnings, but they also have benefits as a result. So there are a range of different impacts that are occurring. As you look at states like Virginia, as an example, their lift was even greater. So I would urge all of us as policy thought leaders to think about that individual who might be making eight to 10 bucks an hour. What does a 19% lift in earnings look like in terms of day-to-day life? Absolutely. And Virginia is a state I know you know well as well. You mentioned the connection with employers here and the jobs on the other end of these shorter term training programs. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done in Louisiana to to really work with employers to make sure those jobs are there, that the opportunities are there? Because I know, you know, for critics of short term Pell, it's a worry that folks might be holding a certificate or certification that doesn't pay off. Yeah, the key here is to develop a relationship with the business community. In Louisiana, we have 90,000 businesses incorporated, 10,000 of those employ about 98% of our people that are employed. So knowing that scope and scale within your state is really important so that you can reach in and understand what portion of the business community are you touching. We then went out and developed a rubric by which our colleges could identify and document a substantive relationship with businesses. For instance, did that business dedicate an employee to serve as a part of advisory committees? Have they contributed to the foundation? Have they hired our our students? Do they have internship opportunities for our students? So those business relationships are the foundation for developing those short-term training programs. What we learned as a result of that relationship is these businesses really are not interested necessarily in hiring someone at the associate degree level. They would much rather have someone who comes in with a specific skill set and then work collectively with the college to help that individual progress across a career. That, to me, is the longer-term work that we have to do. And I think along the way, particularly in the community college sector, we have to be comfortable with the notion that many of these degree programs that we've created over the years in a very traditional mindset with English 1 and 2 and college algebra and the general education courses in the first year and then all the technical programs on the back end, industry is asking us to flip those in the upside down to begin with the technical certifications. Yes, they want the individual to gain those general education courses, but let's do that on the back end. There are many traditionalists in higher education who would view that as just being blasphemy. But the reality is to require someone to walk into a college and take those general education courses in the first semester ignores the realities of the student population that we are trying to serve. Those individuals have life responsibilities and we're trying to teach them the Pythagorean theorem. I want you to think about at some point that must contribute to dropout rates, failure rates, et cetera. Let's make sure that individuals are getting the learning that they need on the front end. That's what industry is asking from us. You know, on that point, obviously some of these issues are not new, but it feels to me, and I'm really curious from your perspective in Louisiana, something's different here in terms of the urgency from employers, the rhetoric around skills-based hiring and using short-term training to fill positions that are have been open and, and, and employers are kind of desperate to fill. Is that narrative true in your state? No question. I'll give you a great example in IBM as an example, came to the state, came to here to Baton Rouge about uh, 10 years ago now. And when they arrived in, in Baton Rouge, there was much discussion about increasing the number of baccalaureate degree completers in computer science and engineering. What we find today is many of those computer science and engineering graduates are being put through a boot camp at Baton Rouge Community College to be prepared to work at IBM. So the skills that IBM is looking for here in our community and at this particular location are really more oriented towards skills, not degrees. 
So I, I think there are many, many examples across the spectrum of that. What has ultimately happened is that boot camp skill set has now been incorporated into the associate degree program at Baton Rouge Community College and other locations. So we're seeing that play out across the IT sector, across the maritime sector, you name it. Just yesterday, we had the opportunity to have an autonomous 18-wheeler that we were able to demonstrate to many people uh, with a partnership with Too Simple. And that autonomous vehicle really helps us to understand, yes, the seat commercial driver's license is, is an important credential, but what's next? The what's next part of that is having enough electrical and instrumentation techs to be able to work on those vehicles. As the market changes, what we are seeing is employers beginning to stand back and ask the question, not what degree do you have, but what skills do you have? What can you do on behalf of this company in exchange for whatever wage we are paying you, whatever benefits package we are providing? So there's no question in my mind, it is not rhetoric at this point. It is clearly demonstrated across this country that skills equal hiring. Well, those are great examples. And I love that your system is getting ahead of the automation challenge with drivers, obviously one that we're all thinking about. So I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges with short-term training uh, for folks who are concerned about opening up the federal spigots to a lot more is how would this play out in terms of equity, racial, ethnic, and gender occupational segregation? Historically, some of the more lucrative short-term programs tend to have more white men and women in particular uh, segregating in, in the allied health ones that don't pay off as well. When you're thinking about a workforce Pell or a short-term Pell, what sort of guardrails and design aspects can really help folks feel confident that this will help on equity as opposed to hurt? Yeah, no, no question. On the equity front, I think it's incredibly important that people understand what we have created with existing policy before we think about the changes. Here in Louisiana, the average credit enrolled student at one of our colleges, one of our 12 two year colleges, is a roughly 27 year old female, many of whom are, are minority and most of whom have a dependent at home. They are enrolled in credit based programs that are typically 16 week semester kind of traditional approach. On the flip side of that, our workforce training programs are typically 36 year old student, white male. The differentiating factor is the fact that the 36-year-old white male typically has money in their pocket to be able to pay for that training that allows them to advance in life. Meanwhile, we're saying to the typically African-American female at 27 with a dependent at home, just sit on the sidelines here for a couple of years and get an associate degree. That is what our federal financial aid policy has driven. That is an equity gap, and the equity gap is being extended every single day that we choose as a nation not to invest in those workforce training programs. I'll give you a second example. We're having a great discussion nationally about infrastructure. To pass an infrastructure package in the trillions of dollars, regardless of what the number becomes, but not address the workforce needs that are there as a result of having those projects, we are simply exacerbating the equity issue in this nation. We have to find a way to invest in that short-term training if we are to have those infrastructure projects become a reality. The haves and the have-nots are moving farther and farther apart. We have to put in place policy steps like short-term bill that will allow people of, of all backgrounds to be able to access that training. To the quality standard and the guardrails, it is the responsibility of institutions of higher education, particularly our community colleges, to ensure that there is data available to demonstrate the quality component. Oftentimes, quality is driven by employment, earnings, and consistency in employment. 
when we six years ago asked employers, how do you determine quality in our graduates? They, they said very simply, if we pay them, then they are quality. So the earnings metric is one that many in higher education are a bit concerned about. Frankly, I think it is a strong indicator of quality. And if these programs are not advancing people at a clip that is worth their time, energy, and the federal resource, then we shouldn't be offering those programs. Well, we'll end it there, Monty. Powerful examples and points. We'll obviously be watching the next few months to see if people here in Washington can get it together on workforce training as part of those big bills. And as always, look into Louisiana for for good examples of how this is playing out, given that you all are ahead of the curve on short-term training. Thank you so much. Very, Very much appreciate all the work that you're doing. All right. Next up is Ann Crest from Nova. So we're talking about short-term job training, and I'm speaking with Ann Kress, the president of Northern Virginia Community College. Hello, Ann. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for doing this. So I think most of us who are paying attention to the issue of short-term education and training are aware that Virginia does a lot of this. Can you give us the skinny on some of the programs that you have in the state and what you're trying to accomplish with them? Sure, absolutely. Well, Virginia really started moving in this direction in earnest in 2016 when the state launched what's called Fast Forward. And Fast Forward is in some ways a pay-for-performance model that funds non-credit workforce training that leads to a credential in an in-demand field in the state. So in the model, the costs are shared across the state and the college and the students. And these are offered in conjunction with the Virginia Community College system. So essentially, the state will pick up the first third. The state will also pick up another third for the students and for the institution if the students complete successfully. So a student is really only paying for a third of the cost of the program. And these are non-credit programs, typically six to 12 weeks. So since the beginning in 2016, the program has really grown. NOVA alone, so Northern Virginia Community College, we call ourselves NOVA, has served about 3,000 students in fast-forward programs. And these include everything from logistics and transportation to healthcare, welding and manufacturing, skilled trades, IT, business and customer service, and early childhood education programs. You know, among other things, I I know Fast Forward has attracted attention for the incentives for for both students and uh, institutions, as as you mentioned. How have those played out? Do you have any evidence, anecdotal or otherwise, that that financial incentive is leading to better outcomes? Absolutely. We have seen over the course of our participation in Fast Forward an increase in student retention, persistence, and completion because students really understand not just, oh, I will have to pay for more of this course if I don't finish, but they also realize that there is a real income gain for them when they do finish. And we share a lot of that information with students. So just to give you a sense, across all of the state, the 23 community colleges, the average student who participates in Fast Forward will see an income gain of about 24%. For individuals in low-income zip codes, that's actually 28%. So we really promote that for students, that you're really going to see something that you'll earn for what you learn. We've also seen a dramatic increase in the diversity of students who've been able to participate as we've been able to open up these programs to other financial aid options. And you and I have talked about the boom that your region has seen. 
I wonder for folks around the country who are worried, you have a lot of employers who have needs, uh, who can pay living wages. Can you do this at scale in places that have more depressed economies or, or can it help? Absolutely. I, you know, I will say Virginia as a whole is a very diverse state. So Northern Virginia certainly is a booming part of the state. But when you look across the state, we also have very rural areas. We have areas that are shifting from old technologies to new technologies. So we are a very diverse economy in the Commonwealth of Virginia, much like every state. So this is really a program that we've been able to see could work in other settings because we ourselves are a microcosm of the U.S. as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah good point. I know incomes are, are quite a bit lower in other parts of the state. Among other things that I know you all do well is, is your data systems. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how that can help in terms of of being aware of student demand and employer demand um, for short-term programs? Absolutely. Well, part of Fast Forward is really the linkage between the Virginia Community College System and the Workforce Board and also the regional EDA so that we have a real good sense of where the jobs are. So an institution, NOVA, for example, cannot begin a Fast Forward program if there isn't regional demand for this credential. And I really want to underscore that because that relies on the data. The reason we're able to track those wage gains is because we can see it in the data. So that quality control measure, I think, is incredibly important. You're often dealing with very vulnerable populations, right? Someone who's looking for that six to 12 weeks to change their life. And you want to put them in a program where that is actually possible, where they can move from one wage bracket to another. So having that data is essential. And most states have it. Most institutions can find a way to access it. We're doing that systematically here at Virginia. And as a result, we can really look at students in the eye and say, if you begin this program, you can start to really change your economic and social mobility. And I assume you are able to better track how that mobility is playing out across equity, ethnic, racial, and gender lines as well? Yes. And I think that's never been more important than it is post-pandemic. You know, I was actually looking at some data today because often we're talking about people who are unemployed when they're looking at a fast-forward program or underemployed. And just looking at the state of Virginia, so more than 40% of small businesses in the state of Virginia have closed during the pandemic permanently or temporarily. And if they're temporarily closed, they still haven't reopened. And when you look at the sectors of folks who are most likely to be long-term unemployed, they're in retail hospitality. More than 50% of those small businesses have closed permanently or temporarily in the state of Virginia. That is significant. So you're looking at a population that is typically overrepresented by minoritized workers And we want to help them find a pathway into the IT economy, into healthcare, into the trades where unemployment rates are very, very low. What we see right now in the state of Virginia is that unemployment rates for individuals who make less than $30,000 a year are over 18%, whereas they're about 1% for folks who are in that middle income bracket that a fast forward credential can link our students to. So that's critical. Let's turn to the, the federal scene here. Obviously, a lot of interesting debate over short-term Pell Grants, opening them up to shorter programs. Virginia is spending a decent amount of money on on these shorter-term programs. What could you do if there was a big federal legislation that would send more money your way? 
So I think the first thing to say is that a program like Fast Forward or the Reemploying Virginians program that Governor Northam launched, which also helps fund these programs, or the new G3 program in the, the state of Virginia, which is a workforce sort of college promise program, all of those show that this can work, right? Having financial aid for short-term credentials where you have a sense that you can ensure quality, you can ensure relevancy to the regional economy, that works. So when you look at, for example, NOVA, we are one of 23 community colleges in the state of Virginia, but as a standalone institution, we account for a third of all system enrollment. So as much money as Virginia has invested into workforce education, there simply isn't enough for NOVA to serve all of the students that we could otherwise serve. So when you look at a program like short-term Pell, that provides that opportunity for even more students to access these pathways into economic and social mobility. That is incredibly critical because you're also talking about, in many cases, adult students who maybe never accessed higher education before or are not at a point in their lives where they can say, I'm going to spend two years or one year in higher education. I need that short-term credential, that six to 12 weeks that's going to get me into that next opportunity that will help me serve my family, feed my family in many cases. So short-term Pell has a real relevance for a huge population of students who right now are outside of any financial aid opportunity. One of the concerns or the criticisms of uh, short-term proposals that I hear most is the, the tracking question. Lower-income folks, less likely to be white and wealthy, getting into these programs, finding entry-level jobs, hopefully, with the shorter-term certifications or credentials, and then not being able to advance to that degree that obviously we all know is, is the best ticket to the middle class. Any lessons from NOVA? or across the state that could apply to the program design of a short-term Pell federal program? Well, and here I'll just talk about the power of community colleges. I think when you invest in community colleges and our students through a program like short-term Pell could be, or like we see right now in the state of Virginia with Fast Forward, what you're really doing is you're investing in institutions that are incredibly accountable and you can set up systems of accountability. So, you know, there is that requirement, for example, in Virginia that we track wages, that we look for high demand occupations in our region. So that's something that you can do with Title IV funds and that would cover short-term Pell. I'll also put in a plug for the College Transparency Act, which has been sitting out there for quite some time, which would apply to Title IV funds like short-term Pell that would enable a much more informed consumer base, the students that we're talking about, looking at various programs and seeing, oh, I could take my investment from the federal government, from the state of Virginia, and I could take Program X, and I might see a monthly wage increase of $100. I could take program Y and I could see a monthly increase of $400. I'm going to go with program Y. Having that data accessible in ways that the general public can understand it is going to be critical to making sure that this is a true and quality investment in the human capital, the individuals with families and lives and dreams that we're talking about. It's a good point on the College Transparency Act. I know some folks who are wary of workforce or short-term Pell would probably be more likely to support that effort if you did have a way of, of tracking students and, and having good data on these programs. Speaking about data, and more anecdotally, I feel like 
there's, you know, a lot of questions from folks of, do these programs really work? There is an evidence to show that they do. And obviously you've made a good case that in Virginia, you have it. Is it just that these programs are relatively new and, and the evidence hasn't gotten around to, to folks yet to know how they can work? I'll say, I don't think these are new programs, right? Short-term credentials have been around for a long time, but as somebody who's worked in higher education, essentially my whole career, and who's worked in community colleges my whole career, I'll say that higher education is really set up with a predisposition towards credit instruction, towards four-year degrees, and even transfer from community colleges to four-year institutions. I think we still have a bias towards credit instruction that doesn't always serve our students. And so I think getting the data there, it's that it hasn't necessarily been an object of study for individuals. Folks have looked at transfer a lot. They've looked at the outcomes of four-year degrees. I don't know that people have really focused that level of attention on short-term credentials. But they have been around for a long time. I'm saying this is the daughter of somebody who once got a nine-week drafting certificate from what was the Milwaukee Institute of Technology. And that was a long time ago. It worked then. It worked now. That's a great example. Nothing's really new in higher ed. And uh, I certainly take your point. Despite the recent flurry of attention to this, it still doesn't get the attention that highly selective four-year colleges get. We don't, that's a different podcast Yeah, and we'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this and your short-term programs at Nova are just one of the things that journalists like me pay a lot of attention to. So I appreciate the access. Well, thank you. And thank you for your attention to this. We're really talking about millions of especially dislocated adults who need this opportunity. And that's what a program like Fast Forward can offer. Excellent. Thanks, Anne. Now I'm going to turn to the folks from JFF for our sense-making segment. All righty, I'm here with Lexi Barrett and Taylor Mag, trying to make sense of what we just heard on short-term Pell. And one of the things that I find challenging as a journalist is the messages are strong on both folks who are concerned and folks who are excited about the potential here. Can you just talk a little bit about why people seem so far apart and why it's so hard to get consensus about the reality here? Yeah, it's a great question. And JFF has definitely been in that mix as well. I mean, I think fundamentally what this comes down to is the balance of trying to provide opportunities to individuals, but also wanting to make sure that those opportunities pay off. And so the national policy debate has really been circling around this issue of outcomes and this issue of quality. And what I thought was really great about um, both what's happening in Virginia and what's happening in Louisiana is that they have really centered in on thinking about outcomes as a fundamental policy design and have tied that straight to data. I often think that we're stuck in a bit of a catch-22 with these programs around data opponents of expanding policy. We don't have enough data about how the outcomes are, but we don't have the data because we're not funding the programs federally, so we don't have a national data set. And it's just, it's tricky. You go around and around in circles. So I love like what Virginia has done to focus on building out that state-level data for these programs on outcomes. And I mean, I think we have to call out College Transparency Act, which is something that would help really tie these pieces together at a national level too. Yeah, obviously, the uh, the lack of data circular discussion is a familiar one. And for folks who don't know, the Transparency Act would, would create that federal student unit record. So, Taylor, what do you think? I mean, I couldn't agree more with 
what Lexi said. I think another key challenge here to design is ensuring that these credential programs are stackable. Both Anne and Monty talked about the increased value of short-term programs when students can build upon that first credential to help them advance in their career as well as progress in a longer-term degree pathway if that's what they want. I think the challenge here, though, is not only designing programs to ensure they are able to do that, which means working across institutional silos between non-credit and credit coursework, um, but also creating robust partnerships with employers to understand what they think about the progression of credentials and what they value. Um, So that's a huge piece of it. But it's also um, another challenge is ensuring individuals actually come back and are able to earn that next credential and actually are able to participate in that next skill development opportunity. Um, I think Virginia and Louisiana have both made impressive strides to map out these pathways and ensure that stackability. So there are two states for sure federal policymakers should continue to look at for solutions as we think about scaling these efforts. But that's definitely also a challenge as we think about quality and ensuring value for students today. Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk equity here. You know, again, message is pretty far apart here and, and there's complexity here. All the programs are different. It's hard to make generalizations about anything in higher ed, including short term programs. But You know, for a lot of folks, this is a big warning flag. You might see a lot of uh, lower income and Black and Latino students holding credentials of low value, and there's a lot of concern there. And and rarely, though, do I see folks on the other side saying, hey, no, this is about opportunity. This is about opening doors for folks who aren't going to be likely enrolling in degree programs or having success in them. So how do you square that debate on equity and and what we actually know about equity in terms of short term? Yeah, I I think that's exactly why I thought Monty's point of kind of turning that coin on its head was so interesting, because I hear the same thing as you. And I think those are really meaningful and valid concerns, right? We don't want a system that is tracking students of color into credentials with poor outcomes. But when Monty brought up the opportunity end of equity, which is, well, what would it mean if there is a high quality short term program? that the only people who can access it are the people who can afford it. And then we're actually putting other students into longer programs that might have worse results or the same results, but they're spending more time. And that's just because they can't access aid. And so I think it's hard. Like there isn't part of the reason why this issue is so tricky is that there's not one clear answer to equity. I think there are equity challenges actually in doing this and also in not doing it. Yeah, I think also as we think about these programs, it's not just about access either. And it's about persistence and completion. And I thought that was something really interesting to hear from Anne, that after Virginia provided tuition assistance for eligible fast forward participants, they saw a dramatic increase in the diversity of students able to enroll and participate. But it's also worth noting that it wasn't just about enrollment and that success, but the state was supporting students to persist and complete. And as we know, Fast Forward has some really significant and positive outcomes with 90% program completion. And Anne mentioned the average income gain of 24%, but then also for individuals from low-income backgrounds, it was a 28% wage gain. So I think looking at Virginia, where you really see an earning increase from what you learn, which is promising as we think about equitable outcomes as well, and not just ensuring more widespread access, but also to Lexi's point, ensuring that people have something to say for the program that they participated in, the credential they earned to close these equity gaps we're talking about. All good points. We're talking about a couple states here that have started to target state funds to short-term programs. 
probably going to see more discussion in other state capitals of that. Also, there's some federal discussion. How urgent are we talking here? How fast could something happen? Or, or is this one of those kind of slow moving debates that we'll be having for years? Well, Paul, I hope this isn't a slow moving debate that we have for years, even though I know we've been having this discussion for a while now. I mean, we have to do something and we need to do it soon. And we all know, like Anne mentioned, credential programs have existed for a long time. But right now there's demand like we've never seen before. I mean, the trend started to kind of rise even prior to the pandemic. But as we know, COVID continued to disrupt our systems, the economy, as well as individuals and families. And I think it became even more clear for everyone that business as usual is just not working, especially for populations that were disproportionately affected, specifically across race and gender lines. So I think as a result, people are really questioning the status quo. And part of that is traditional higher education. I think individuals and the consumers want more rapid and flexible ways to gain good employment. And simultaneously, employers are desperate for talent and need public partners to help them find it. So, I mean, Paul, to your point, we know these models and options are not going away anytime soon. So I think it's time we do something to make them better and scale these best practices that are happening in Virginia and Louisiana. And hopefully that's through some federal support, because you're right, we need to do something because it's not going away. And it's just going to, these trends are just going to get heightened. Yeah, I mean, it feels like something that Congress could act on at any moment, honestly. And we need to do something, but we need to do it right. So that's why these conversations are so critical. Yeah, a lot going on right now. Uh, There's a lot of reasons why this debate's happening that aren't just the kind of culmination of a few years of discussion here in Washington and the economy and all good points you made there. Well, I wish we could keep going, frankly. Maybe we should schedule another episode on this one. Thank you, Taylor and Lexi, for helping us make sense of this important conversation. Thanks, Paul.